0: You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast.
1: You're listening to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Each week, we jump into a different topic within the business world and hear more from today's leaders on how they navigated and continue to navigate that world. In today's episode, we're talking with Nicole Verkint, CEO of OMX, Offset Market Exchange. Nicole sits on multiple different boards and is also the co-chair of the Business Council of Canada's task force on Canada's economic future. Nicole, happy to have you on the show. So thanks for joining me today Nicole I really do appreciate it. You have had quite a remarkable career. Um I've known you for a couple years but I really don't even know all the depths of what you do and how you do it. Um and it's it's quite fascinating a woman of your stature um not only in the state age but you've definitely had some great experiences. So I'm going to pick your brain a little bit today.
0: So talk to me a little bit maybe about your journey. Oh, boy, well, first of all, it's great to be here and great to see you again, uh, Manjeet. Wow, time flies. I think it's been longer than a couple of years, but uh, where do I begin on the background? I grew up in a family business. We I, I I very clearly feel that I had a breakfast table education in the sense that um my parents were always coming home, you know, arguing over somebody they wanted to fire or uh, debt cash flow issues, all the typical entrepreneurial, uh, Issues that we know very very well. So I grew up in that environment. My parents were in a manufacturing uh, company. They sold to governments around the world, and I went to business school and kind of went out and, and worked for commission only for a sales company and was was uh, working abroad and decided to start up a manufacturing business selling into very similar customers that were a part of my family business. So kind of had some expertise or or background knowledge on that customer and selling to that customer, which is very interesting, actually, when you're selling to government, most of it is just online bidding and trying to win auctions. And so I was kind of playing around with that and won some contracts. And I was totally the dog that caught the car by accident. I was not expecting it. We I won a contract. We had to deliver. We were allowed to, to manufacture in a list of 10 countries I was obviously looking for the lowest cost jurisdiction, so low labor cost. And uh, one of the countries on the list was the Dominican Republic. And I went down and started my first uh, company and factory down there and and ran that for uh, four or five years before that was sold to a private equity fund um, along with the family businesses. And uh, so I got my feet wet in entrepreneurship, just running a straight manufacturing business, which does not sound sexy at all, but... I mean, there were 70 employees on day one, and uh, we had an enormous amount of fun. It was it was a really, really fun experience. Um, a very young team. I think everyone was under the age of 30, and most of them were women because women were very good at sewing. And then in 2011, I started uh, the tech company that, uh, that I actually just sold in, in March of this year which was all around automating a lot of those systems that I had become very familiar with in manufacturing and in selling to government. So we were automating a big portion of the supply chain uh, country of origin tracking, so tracking where goods are manufactured, which is required by government, and then producing all those reports. So B2B enterprise uh, software platform. But I think it's just important for people to know like I wasn't planning any of that. I fell into the different parts of it. Um, it was a very strange niche to have an expertise in, and uh, I I was not expecting to even get into tech. I don't even really have a tech background. I just had the domain expertise. Now I'm I'm you know working for the company that acquired uh, OMX, and we'll see what's next. Well, that's really exciting. Your first entrepreneurial venture. How old were you? Oh my gosh. Um, well, however old you are when you're right out of university, so twenty three. What was the changing point do you feel where you discovered that
1: you're going to be an entrepreneur and you know, not pursue a traditional career?
0: I always assumed I wouldn't be an entrepreneur, actually. I, I went through business school and I remember looking at all the job, the jobs that were coming up for the summer and I didn't get a summer job. And so I ended up interning with another entrepreneur. And uh, I, again, assumed that after a fourth year, I would go and get a job. And I interviewed at multiple places. Um, I remember Gatorade. Pepsi was starting this new Gatorade for women, G2. And I wanted that job so bad, and I didn't get it. And uh, I remember just interviewing and not getting jobs <laughs> and wearing these horrible suits. And, uh, and I, I literally just ran into somebody at an event and they offered me this pseudo job, which was not a job at all, um, doing sales and working commission only. Um, And I was quite good at it. I sold those cheesy inserts, you know, in the center of the Economist magazine, you know, come to this country, (laughs) we have a great environment for investors. So that's what I did for the first six months before I started this manufacturing business. Um, And I, I actually think it was a function of not getting the jobs that I wanted Um, Because everyone at that time going through the business program, you know, they all wanted to be accountants, investment bankers or management consultants. So it was unusual to be anything else. And I never assumed that I would be an entrepreneur, but I grew up around it. So I don't know why I didn't assume that. Um, I definitely did not want to work in the family business. I was I was adamantly against that. And of course, I ended up working in it at some point.
1: And so what h- makes you so courageous and fearless to take on uh, these new opportunities
0: and new challenges, essentially? Oh my gosh, I've never thought about that. I have no idea. I, I've i never seen myself as courageous at all. I've actually seen the opposite. I remember when I was getting started within OMX, there was so many times where I thought I was gonna just roll it all up and kind of give up. But then the only reason I kept going was because I felt guilty because I had taken some money from friends and family when I raised some early stage capital. And there was a lot of times where I just definitely felt like I wasn't courageous at all. So I think that it's important for people to understand that and for me not to kind of lie here and say that I I have always felt courageous. I would have to say that I haven't. Um, But I've had some good mentors along the way. I had a really tough mentor early on that I would complain or say that I I couldn't do something or it felt too hard. And he would just say, you know, this is the new hard part. And the next part, there'll be another new hard part. So in other words, we were trying to get sales and that was the hard part. And then we were trying to hire and then that was the next hard part. And so I think it's just about biting things off in small chunks and iterating your process, uh, in very small steps. And, I'm sure you know all about that. When you look back, you can't believe how much you've accomplished. But at the time, you know, I would make a list of the 10 things that had to get done this week and then the next 10 that had to get done today. And and you just do these small things one at a time.
1: Yeah, I, I'm a list maker for sure, too. Um, You mentioned a mentor. So um, have you had many mentors in your life and how have they affected um your journey? So I would
0: say I've only had informal members um, with the exception of this person I'm going to talk about, but I have always have been very into reading biographies. I've had a lot of good friends that are entrepreneurs, you know, family members that are entrepreneurs. Um, So I feel that I've had a lot of informal mentorship, just chatting with people about their experiences and how they did certain things. Um, But I remember getting involved very early on uh, with the CYBF, very small I think it was a $20,000 grant and they required this formal mentor and I was in a big huff about it. I didn't have the time for it. I didn't, I didn't want to take on a formal mentorship uh, relationship. And so I get teamed with this individual and I've written a blog about it. So his name's out there. His name is Jim Latimer. And, uh, and he was really hard on me. He made me um, commit to what I would do between each mentorship meeting. So I would say, okay, I'm going to do these six things. And then we would take minutes and I would have to, the next time I'd come back in a month, if I hadn't done those six things, he said, don't bother meeting with me kind of thing. And so he was very hard on me. And he he always said, at the time I didn't have a board. Um, and he said, well, entrepreneurs actually do have a way of not keeping themselves accountable. Like we just have this way because we're always in charge that sometimes. And so he did that for me a little bit, which which I really, really appreciate and I have a lot of respect for this idea of a formal mentor. And I think the key is that they can't be interested in your business in the sense that they, you know, a shareholder, a board member, somebody who has equity is not a mentor. It's not a pure mentor. They can be mentoring. They can act like that, but they're not a pure mentor in the sense that they don't have an interest in you or your business, a financial interest. So I I really feel that I benefited from that experience. Good point.
1: I I do like that differentiation of the definition of a mentor because a lot of people just assume that if they're on your board or they're around you all of a sudden you're getting advice for them from them but I do like that separation. I think that that's really important and and key that not many of us think about because it is time-consuming to have mentors but I truly believe in the power of mentorship and and obviously do you um but it's nice to know that it can happen in different ways. It doesn't always need to be formal. I like the informal mentorship um idea too because it, you take it as it comes right talk to me about being an entrepreneur and being a millennial how do you feel that millennial entrepreneurs are different than older generation entrepreneurs
0: i think that we're having a real moment uh, especially with millennials and the new generation coming up i think i don't know how you feel about this but there wasn't a lot of talk or celebration of entrepreneurs 10, 15 years ago when I kind of first looked at it. I don't remember there being any. And I think that we're having a real moment driven by technology and e-commerce and and driven by the tools that are out there from companies like Shopify that make it almost free to start your own online business. So I feel that we're having a real moment um, and that millennials are, are a big part of that. So uh, what do you see um, as the business trends
1: these days? Because you definitely are involved in a variety of organizations, not only as board member, you know, Canadian Commercial Corporation, Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Business Council of Canada, and you co-chair the BCC's Task Force on Canada's Economic Future, just to mention a few of the great things that you do. So what do you see um, as the business trends happening um, in, in Canada right now?
0: Well, definitely post COVID-19, we've seen a massive acceleration of digitization. That's totally a very obvious point that I think we're finally seeing. I've always been in B2B enterprise software, and that's what I've been mostly interested in. And I've seen a huge reluctance from big corporations to adopt uh, cloud-based solutions. There's been a long tail on on on-premise, just not cloud-based. And with Covid nineteen, I do believe that we've seen an acceleration of an, um, uh, you know, um, embracing those technologies. So that's a great trend. Um, I don't want to turn the podcast into this uh, negative, complaining podcast about Canada, but my role on the BCC uh, did uncover a lot of um, fundamental issues in our economy that I think that we are going to have to address. In that um, we have a resource based economy, and a lot of the fundamentals that sort of. Indicate or leading indicators for the long term future uh, of our economy. So, for instance, how much Canada is exporting that actually has unique IP, uh, how difficult it is for us to get uh, permits to start new businesses, the regulatory burden in Canada. Um, A lot of these leading long term indicators, you know, how competitive of a business environment we have in Canada. Uh, What we did find through that process was that we do have a lot of work to do in Canada. And one of the kind of punchlines I always think about through that study that that we spent a year doing is that all of the work that people like yourself and, and, and myself are doing with the startup and innovation communities, I think one of the biggest business trends we need to have is more collaboration between that community and large corporations to power and make larger corporations and government more competitive, more adaptable, um, And I I think that that's something that's, that was, we were really on track to have that conversation, but obviously the last six or seven months has been pretty dominated by, uh, by the implications of COVID-19, understandably, but that's a trend that I really hope that we consider to be really, really important. And, you know, I can give you a very quick example. Um, We have companies in Canada, we have two in particular that I can think of that, have unique IP in Canada. They were not able to raise capital in Canada, so they raised most of their capital from the U.S., uh, China, and Germany. And then, then they turned to Canadian companies to sell their solutions. One of them was is AI-related, the other is robotics-related. And Canadian companies just were not embracing innovation as quickly as, in, and this is a general terms, but not embracing innovation as quickly as other countries. So not only now is a big portion of their equity and ownership owned from abroad, but they they've now are selling those technologies to huge corporations in China, Germany, across Europe and the US. And so our own large companies here in Canada are losing their competitive uh any competitive advantage they may have had by not embracing Canadian technology. So it all just feels like I think we do have some real work to do to ensure that we embrace those latest trends because we you and I could sit here and talk for the whole time about blockchain and um AI and all of these things that are technology trends, but you know we're still talking about digitization and cloud in in uh, Canadian businesses. So I think that there's a lot that can be done to embrace these new trends. How do you
1: feel as businesses that we can position ourselves to be successful? Do you think government um, needs to be more involved, less involved? Regardless of um, you know the the position that we're in right now with COVID nineteen,
0: well, I don't think that government is the answer, but I do think that there are some structural things in our country that could be adjusted. For instance, the the our tax policy. You know, what could we do within our tax policy that maximizes incentive of embracing innovation, embracing risk, attracting capital to our country. Um, you know, for instance, you're an angel investor. I'm a, I'm a small angel investor, not as big as you are, but why aren't there angel invest investment tax credits? Why are there not uh, flow-through shares allowed for something beyond mining? You know, mining um, investors can take the losses and write them off against personal income. Um, you know, why do we not allow some of these things that could solve that first problem I described, which is getting capital to these innovations? And then, you know, we just... there's just a a bunch of other examples in terms of regulatory burden that we face um, here in Canada that's a a lot worse than, you know, our counterparts in the U.S. that I think that could be tweaked. So when it comes to government's role, my position is that I think that we have some policy tweaks that should be done. So, you know, a total review of our, our tax structure and our tax policy Um, and a look at uh, regulatory burden that the companies face. You know, we can't get pipelines approved. I'm sure you hear that a lot living in Calgary. Oh, yes. Um, We should be able to get big infrastructure and energy projects approved, you know, much more easily. That would attract a lot more capital to our country. Um, So I think that the government, the changes from government are almost policy tweaks. And then I think we just live in such a great country that from a cultural perspective, I don't know that we feel this big urgency. I have a feeling that you feel this big urgency, but I'm not sure that everybody, you know, we we live in a great country for the most part, you know, there's a very good strong middle class here. And so I'm not sure that we feel this urgency that those things are connected, that in order to be competitive, to invest in innovation, that's actually completely required for us to continue to live this this great life in this great country for the long term. So I think that there's also a bit of a cultural shift and a mind, mind uh, shift that needs to happen as well. But I'm also really enthused by what we see from things like Dragon's Den and millennials and people that are really into technology and innovation and new ideas. So that, that part's exciting too.
1: So you touched um, on the point of um, investment. And so when you are looking to invest in others, um, in entrepreneurs and in new businesses, what are you looking for these days?
0: Well, in in early stage, for me, I've just found that I kind of back the jockey as opposed to the horse. So, you know, when whenever I have gone involved with an entrepreneur that I really, really believe in, you know, we're on the same wavelength, and I I just feel that they have the I'll call it chutzpah or the ability to kind of push through huge challenges. Um, they they can think about pivoting and those. I think those are that's kind of a winning formula because I don't I don't believe you can always bet on the product itself um, that you can always bet on the market itself. There's always going to be competitors. You've seen this all. I mean, so that's been my kind of. I've I've had some really really good outcomes with some of the angel investments I've made, and um, the founders have been sort of really good at adapting, really good at. Uh, collaboration and working with others. And then sometimes a lot of it is just luck. And I don't know how, how you can pick that. But um, uh, it's very difficult, though. I, I think angel investing, you have to go in knowing that there's a, a high chance of of failure, which is okay.
1: Agreed. Um, angel investing definitely is not one for the, the weary or the faint of heart. Um, so what are the red flags that you look for as an investor, especially when you're um, investing in startup companies? What are your like non-negotiables, no-go?
0: Oh, boy. Uh, my biggest non-negotiable is if I'm a potential customer, and I, I understand that I wouldn't be in a lot of scenarios, if I can find reasons why I wouldn't use the product, um, I don't want to call out a particular startup, but let's just say I got very excited about a startup. They had a particular food item, and I am really into vegan food and all that kind of stuff. And I got very excited and I wanted to invest in this company. And then I went to Loblaws and noticed that there are a bunch of different competitors, they're cheaper, it's the exact same thing. And then I thought, wait a minute, I actually don't think I would buy from that company. I think that I would just buy this product. And so to me, that feels like the biggest red flag. And then the other big one that I actually see more often in enterprise B2B is I see it as a big red flag when somebody's solving a problem that's a little bit of a nice to have, right? Like I am making this part of someone's job a little bit more efficient. And that's a red flag for me because I definitely believe that there's a market for that and that somebody will pay to be a little bit more efficient. But if you're not if you're not solving something that somebody needs solved within a short period of time, I just think that your sales cycles are going to be very long. It's going to be a long slot and slog. And, um, you know, it's kind of like, do you have a sore tooth that's kind of nagging you that you could pull out anytime in the next two years, or does it need to come out tomorrow? And, you know, is it a real problem or not a real problem? So that's, that's the other big one.
1: Got it. Yeah, some days I'm more of a patient investor, um, but not most. <laughs> my my um, natural inclination is always definitely less patience and time um, than more. Um, so when we're talking to startups, which you obviously have um, a lot of input with and a lot of touch um, base with, what are your tips to them when they're starting, not only during a pandemic, but you know pre-March?
0: Well, the biggest tip I've seen a lot of startups, I'm sure you've seen this too, where they spend a lot of time up front kind of modeling out a whole bunch of scenarios, um really overanalyzing a lot of a lot of elements of where the business could be in two or three or four years. Um and I my biggest advice is to just who cares just start selling if it's not perfect and you know make a lot of mistakes and that's okay and don't worry so much about having the absolute perfect image and brand. You might get one one star review because you screwed something up, but you, you kind of have to go through that process. So that's, that's the first one. Um, and then the second one is um, when I was starting out, a lot of people made comments that they wouldn't invest in me because I wasn't a co-founder, that a single founder you know, would struggle a lot worse. But then in the startups I've invested in, some of the ones that have failed have been because co-founders didn't get along or had a different vision or didn't have a very uh, great partnership agreement in terms of how they were splitting up their duties. And so, um, you know, I I think I read, and I don't know if the stat is correct, that that's like the second most likely reason why a startup sort of falls apart in its early years is issues with sort of co-founders. So, um, you know, always trying to help them out with making sure those expectations are kind of set early on. But, um, you know, the biggest thing is just make sure you're solving a problem that the customer really wants solved. Right. And it sounds so obvious and it sounds like I'm talking to a a kindergarten student, but um, I mean, you're smiling because you know exactly what I'm talking about. That that is the reason, you know, companies fail because they run out of money. They run out of money because they can't sell and they can't raise capital if they don't have any sales. And so they can't sell if the customer really, really, really doesn't want that problem solved.
1: I completely agree. Um, I'm lucky that my co-founder is my brother and we get along and for two decades we've been doing okay, but I can totally see how many people once, uh, co-founders once they find some success, it falls apart. I'd seen it with my dad beforehand. I've seen it with many around me. Um, So it's interesting that that comment was made to you. I never look at it that way um, when investing in entrepreneurs, but if they're family members, I always definitely then ask, okay, what are the bad, How do you mediate? How do you like do all those things that I know are going to come up, whether you fail or you succeed? And so um, that's a really interesting comment, actually. Um, So, what mistakes do you think that you have made um, that maybe you wish you didn't, or that
0: you're happy that you did early on in your career? Oof, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. I think, I think I spent a little bit too much time up front. Uh, kind of doing exactly what I described that I try to encourage people not to do. So I think I spent way too much time up front, really overanalyzing the long game, really trying to get the product perfect. Um, Now I was selling to enterprise. We needed very high security. I have some of my excuses about why I did that, but I think I regret that. Um, I also regret sort of that period where I had no idea what to do with my life, kind of right around that age of 23, where I was really kind of caring what everyone else was doing. You know, I was looking at people, they were making good salaries right out of the gate, working for big investment banks. And I remember feeling pretty insecure about this notion that I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I look back at that and wish I hadn't wasted so much time, Um, you know, going to the Gatorade interview, thinking that I needed to do what everyone else was doing. (laughs) So... (laughs) And Got it. Yeah, I I, I can
1: definitely um, empathize with that. Um, And for me, that was, I saw everybody else partying and traveling and doing all the fun stuff while I was working um, and studying engineering at the same time trying to, you know, do this fancy dance. So I, when I look back, I think, oh, I should have had a bit more fun and maybe not looked just what I was doing. Maybe I should have actually looked somewhat at what others were doing
0: but you know who knows um so what do you think is your biggest challenge right now oh well my, my biggest challenge right now is i've been cooped up in this beautiful office attic uh, <laughs> 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 and i miss my old life but, you know there's much worse things you can complain about um yeah i mean moving things forward without meeting people in person is is a huge challenge challenge right now for sure. Um I am really really itching to get going again but I know there's you know higher priorities uh in the world but um you know I just think that there's always new challenges when you're out there starting something or leading something or trying to grow something and they kind of change all the time. And so it is a very real challenge. It's at the top of my mind cuz I was working on it right before we 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 uh, started talking about, you know, what is our our, our growth plan in, le- in knowing that there's no physical events, there's no ability to really meet with customers in person. And so really thinking through how to continue to, at these growth rates um, all via Zoom, essentially, it's difficult.
1: So what keeps you motivated? What's keep kept you motivated the last, you know, since you were 23, I guess?
0: Well, up until very recently, it was fear. Like, it was just straight fear. I I don't feel that I was necessarily motivated for the grand things. I was scared of failing, and I'll admit that. Um, and so I think that that's really what got me out of bed originally. Um, and, you know, now it's about it's about really thinking about how to have the biggest impact. Like, I'm really thinking through how technology and how what I do and can set up can have a larger impact, um, you know, beyond, so it's investing in startups, it's it's using ESG data, data to make better decisions. You know, I'm doing some very interesting stuff uh, with technology and forced labor and trying to um, have a big impact there through large corporations. So um, that's what's motivating me now is this bigger, having this bigger impact. And are you a very disciplined person
1: or are you, I wouldn't want to say a little... Scatterbrain, but that's what I call my brother. So I'll say that. Um, Does disorganization kind of fuel you or are you very um, scheduled and disciplined and, and organized?
0: I think I'm a little bit of both. When I get into execution mode, I am super, super type A and OCD. And I'm sure your calendar looks the same where there's little 15 minute slots and everything's colored and organized. So I am very organized. I'm very schedule oriented. I usually know exactly what I'm doing on Thursday three weeks from now. Um, but I think it's also important for just creativity to kind of let that go and and have some bigger thoughts around, um, you know, coming up with new ideas and how to grow and taking on new experiences and that sort of thing. So I do think I'm a little bit of both. I think that I was probably described as very scatterbrained um, earlier on in my in my I'll call it career, but I'll say my early 20 s. Uh, I was definitely very scatterbrained, so maybe this is almost a reaction. Uh, it's like that the pendulum had to swing or else I wouldn't have survived.
1: I thrive on schedule and discipline um, definitely. <laughs> um well, thank you very much. once again, Nicole, I really do appreciate your time.
0: Keep in touch. It's been great chatting with you though, Manjeet. I uh... It's been a well while since I've seen you. And uh, I, I want to ask all the questions back to you, but I don't think we have time.
1: Thanks, Nicole, for joining me today to talk about entrepreneurship, investment, and the economics of this country and your life in general. I really appreciate your time. Please join us next week for an all new episode.